NTU World of Wisdom. Welcome to High Impact Thesis. In this podcast, we speak with researchers from various scientific fields to talk about the motivation, goal, and potential impact of their research. We also want to give you a sense of how a PhD is carried out with an emphasis on the PH, the philosophical aspects involved in pursuing a PhD. All right, welcome to another episode of the High Impact Thesis Podcast. Uh, today's guest is Alvin Chua. So Alvin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Okay, um, so as usual, uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, Alvin's work specifically. We're going to talk then generally about his field. We also are going to talk specifically about his interests as a human being. So it's going to be an exciting conversation. And we both are excited about having Alvin here, who is going to be from, who is from uh, sociology, right? Humanities. From the, from the humanities, <laughs> right? So it's quite a change from the science engineering kind of science, I guess, that we've been doing. So we hope that uh, our listeners, that you enjoy this conversation. Okay, so Alvin, introduce us to you. Um, who are you? What can we know about you? Okay. Hi, I'm Alvin. I'm a second-year PhD student in um, the School of Humanities, specifically the history program. But uh, my research is in archaeology, so it's a bit here and there. Mm. Um, so we have uh, my supervisor is an archaeologist in humanities. That's why I'm here. Um, and my specific research deals with um, ceramics, uh, earthenware from Southeast Asia. Um, so, um, Singapore, sites from Singapore, and I'm also look. I'll be looking at sites from around Singapore, so uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, for instance. So mm-hmm. that's my research in a nutshell, and I'm sure we'll have time to expand on it in a moment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm really interested in understanding the history of ceramics. The, the, when did is there a a time that we think humanity invented or decided that you realize that you could turn clay into you know these kinds of materials that have different properties very different from the clay that uh, yeah I think that's a far, good place to start I mean how far back like, are we talking about yeah this, wh- why exactly it's several thousand years ago so mm-hmm. um, the basic storyline is that um, you there's this Neolithic revolution where mankind started um, going about with agriculture. And one of the things that you need with agriculture is pottery for mm-hmm. storage of grains, for instance, mm-hmm. or cooking the grains. And that's when, so that's the general story of how ceramics came about. And you have that, for instance, in the, uh, the Near East, um, the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm over there, um, Egypt, and, and then Indus Valley, and also in China. Um, Southeast Asia, I guess, is a bit less um, less well-known, as a, or less, less considered as a, a cradle of civilization as compared to the other mm. uh, four areas, for instance. But yeah, you do have ceramics coming about also around the Neolithic uh, period. So, so the first thing, for you to create ceramics, the first thing you need to invent is fire, I suppose, right? Yeah, you need to um, fire up the 
ceramics too. Then the next step is really to know the process, like how long you need to keep it at a certain temperature. I guess that's as in the mental things are earth and fire. Am I right? Um, and place water and um, oh, okay. You have what you call temper, which is um, things that you add in. Um, for instance, sand, which changes the property of the clay. So, for instance, it makes it uh, it may make it more um, resistant to fire um, to heating. So, when you uh, fire the the ceramics, they won't um, crack and break up. For mm-hmm. instance, and so, uh, what's the current theory? Do do we do we know if these uh, methods were organic organically developed or did, were they transferred from other ah, regions? That is a very tricky one because <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's I guess a kind of deep theory about diffusionism where you start at one center and it just diffuses all um, all over mm. so I think the current one is that it's more it's not a one-way street but rather it it when things travel away from wherever it starts or wherever it was made mm-hmm. things come back as well so it's a it's it's a process. It's quite. It's much more complicated because people are well. Human beings learn and adapt, so they right. learn from others as well at the same time as when they um, uh, teach others, so to right. speak. So in Southeast Asia, one of the theories is called the Nusantau and NMTCN Nusantau Maritime Trade and Communication Network where one of the things that they looked at was uh, ceramics. So you have specifically in the decorations, so you see a set of ceramic patterns, not entirely uh, the same, but some some bits here and there being um, found all over the the region. And the main idea basically is that uh, the sea acted as a conduit for um, the flow of ideas, information, trade goods, and so on including pottery. So the, the ideas of um, pottery and the de- their decorations were transferred all, all across. And that was because you have the, the sea that uh, facilitated mm. this kind of transfer. Okay. And um, so we know like there are certain types of... Um, what's the word? Ceramics. Corps? Corps? Like uh, agriculture? Ah, crops. Crops, yep. yeah. Uh, that are unique to you know this part of the world, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we mentioned in the beginning that these things tend to develop, uh, you know, parallel with the with agriculture, yeah. right? Uh, so, are there like specific, you know, tools and you know ceramic, uh, you know, containers that have unique style to only to Southeast Asia, for example? Um, Southeast Asia. Or, or east, let's say. East. Yeah. Uh, you mean like decorations, for instance. Right, or just functions, let's say. Ah. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just makes it unique mm. or different than other parts of the world. Yeah, probably the, the decorations, if you look at um, the, not, not single decorations, but rather a group of the decorations, um, which has been called uh, the Sakuin Kalani mm. um, Ceramic Complex, where you have a set of uh, decorations, but I can't recall offhand what types. Uh, right. 
but yeah, they are they are in a group. But as I mentioned before, um, when they traveled around via the sea, uh, some of so again here is where human agency comes in because some of the um, motifs would be chosen specifically by certain people, mm. and then some other people would use different motifs, but still in the same set of uh, of decorations within. Yeah. Okay. okay. So I think yeah, here it's more of decorations that um, that I would say is a bit more unique. Um, whereas for forms, for instance, you would have say like cooking pots, and that's quite something quite you would find elsewhere as well. Hmm. Um, the other thing I guess would be the materials that were made. I see. Uh, the materials that were used to make these pots because. Um, with well, that goes back to geology. So, what kind of clays are available, mm. and that's um, that's the kind of uh, ceramics you you'd get based on the clays that are available in uh, a certain region. Yeah. So that's kind of where a bit veering towards my my own research, right. um, looking at this. Sorry, and how how far back is this? Like the period you're studying. Uh, uh, the period I'm studying is uh, in the historical period, so for Singapore, uh, 14 to 16 centuries. So it's not a prehistoric ah, way I back. See. Okay. Because uh, for Singapore, we, as far as I'm aware, we don't have um, prehistoric sites. Hmm. There's one potential site, I think, on the northern part of the island, but chances of um, any excavation being done there is close to zero because... <laughs> It's on an army firing range, ah, firing range. Okay, so okay. that's not going to happen. And um, as far as I'm aware, for instance, in Malaysia, neighboring Malaysia, you have um, prehistoric sites mainly in the caves, cave, hmm. cave areas. So that's another thing that you don't really find over here. Interesting. Yeah. So, so when we talk about ceramics, can you give like a one-line uh, description of what we're talking about? So I'm assuming that the tiles and homes, so, for example, are ceramics mm-hmm. as well. So, as, uh, yeah. well so I guess at the most basic, you would call them fired clay. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you even have like yeah, tiles, roof tiles, for instance, that would also be, that would also be counted as ceramics. So mm-hmm. that's ceramics from, I guess, an archaeological perspective, because if you ask a material scientist, ceramics would be something quite different. I see. Um, so, but in archae- archaeologically, archaeologically speaking, um, tiles, like roof tiles, floor tiles, uh, we would class them as um, build, um, building materials. So it could be ceramic building materials mm. or architectural materials. So you have those, and then you have, say, um, bricks. Yeah, bricks would be ceramics as well. Um, but at the same time, you have mortar, which you use to join bricks together. So those are not fired clay, but you would call them, uh, class them under um, these uh, construction materials. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they were they traded uh, in the region, ah. across the region? Like, That's, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, for earthenware, it's a bit more difficult because you have the tempered earthenware. So these are the earthenware which you put in inclusions. So those would, um, well, the hypothesis is that they were made locally, but it's difficult to test that hypothesis because um, based on ethnological studies as well, ethnographical studies, sorry, um, the 
pots would be fired either um, in a bonfire, so you stack the pots up and you just fire them, or you dig a pit in the ground and put the, your pots in and fire them. Mm. And in the archaeological records, you don't have much, they don't uh, leave much traces as compared to, say, a kiln. When, and you need kilns for ceramics that are, higher, are fired at a higher temperature. So those are the things um, like uh, porcelain or stoneware, and those, uh, they are traded around. Um, mm. But before I go there, there's uh, a type of earthenware that is traded around, which is called uh, fine pasteware. So these are, unlike the tempered earthenware, they are, um, they, they are without those uh, tempers. And the two main centers of production that they found are in Java and in Southern Thailand. Mm. And those were traded around, so you can find those uh, in even in Singapore. You have in the Singaporean sites, you have these uh, shirts, uh, fine paste shirts are fine paste to wear. So that's for the earthenware, and then for the higher fired um, ceramics, you have um, the Thai, Thai Thailand. Uh, they did quite a bit and was um, exported around. Um, I think it's the Cambodian, the Angkorian ones. Uh, Vietnamese ones as well and these ones uh, you find them in in addition to the Chinese porcelain in mm. shipwrecks for instance so you have loads of shipwrecks around the South China Sea and those um, yeah they do contain quite a bit of like um, Thai ceramics and the reason why you have Southeast Asian high fireware going around is because of what they call the Ming Ban so that was during the Ming Dynasty around the 15th, 16th centuries, mm -hmm. where China decided to close their doors. And um, that more or less stopped, stopped the flow of mm -hmm. Chinese porcelain, although you have traders doing it illegally. But um, based on um, the research, it, they found that um, in the shipwrecks from these, this peri period, there's mu there was much less Chinese porcelain mm -hmm. around, and instead you have a lot of Thai um, ceramics. So when the, the Chinese closed their doors to uh, porcelain export, uh, there was still a market, so it was filled in by the, the Thai the Viet and the Vietnamese, uh, um, the Southeast Asian ceramics. So, so is there something <coughs> about the China... China is the term for Chinese porcelain, right? Um, or are they different? Uh, I would call them, just call them Chinese porcelain. Okay. Because <laughs> growing up, we had a lot of these, you know, what I now realize are ceramic uh, things that we just call China. Mm, um, yeah. and I, a lot of them, right? So I'm just wondering, this technology seems to be, you just put things in a kiln and you control the temperature and you make them. So is there something special about the clay that they use to yeah. jar the, the Chinese uh, yeah. porcelain? So for Chinese porcelain, they use kaolin. Kaolin. So, Kaolin is a type of clay. Yeah, a type of clay um, that you would be very suitable for um, porcelain because for porcelain, the difference between porcelain, stoneware, and earthenware is that porcelain is fired at a much higher temperature, mm -hmm. above 1,300 degrees Celsius. And not all clays can withstand that kind of temperature mm -hmm. because if you fire, say, any random clay, it might just um, break. Mm -hmm. So for kaolin, it is able to withstand to 1,300 degrees Celsius. And that is one reason why 
um, they can be used for uh, porcelain, the Chinese porcelain. And and in the past, I'm wondering wood would li- would get you to that temperature. I'm wondering how the yeah you also need the type a type well kilns for start. Um, I can't recall offhand for the porcelain Chinese porcelain, but um, there are different types of kilns. So um, as I mentioned before, you have the the bonfire and the pit. So that's the most basic one, which is well, not a kiln. But um, the next stage would be um, updraft kilns. So basically, they are a tower. They are mm-hmm. towers, and you just stack upon um, your ceramics one after another. Mm-hmm. So the heat source is from underneath, and it flows upwards because heat travels upwards, right? So um, for that, you can get a higher temperature because it's in a contained space. But the firing is not as even as you would um, like it to be. So the lowest part would be at a um would be high, fired at a higher temperature, whereas um the ones higher up would would have less heat. Um, then the next development is called a a cross draft kiln. Um, one example is the dragon kiln uh, in the Taoguang um pottery jungle, which is close to NTU. If anyone has <laughs> been there, where is it NTU? Um, just outside NTU actually. Oh. Um, but so so with the updraft kiln, it goes upwards. The cross-draft kiln, it's um, something like vertical. But horizontal. Uh, sorry, yeah, horizontal. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so vertical, horizontal. So um, in Southeast Asia, they started building that along riverbanks because mm-hmm. uh, they just made use of the natural inclination of the, the ground to build these um, cross-draft kilns. Mm, okay. And then... The next stage was where, so what they did was they just jumped up through the ground, put the ceramics in and fired them. Mm. Um, the next stage was where they reinforced the, the dome with uh, mud or um, other materials because that is quite prone to collapsing, mm. so you need to reinforce them. And then the third stage is where they just built the kilns uh, above ground, so in ground to kind of a transition and then above ground. So if these cross-draft kilns, you have the the, the firing chamber um, horizontally, and then you have your fire your firebox in front where you have the fire fire and the heat will go through um, horizontally. And that allows uh, a more even kind of firing mm. and um, higher temperature as well. So that's how they would have achieved um, those kinds of uh, high temperatures. It sounds like uh, like a blast furnace in in smelting. You know? like I yeah, yeah. This it's something like that. that kind of helps. But the thing is, um, with blast furnaces, the heating is quite fast. So with ceramics, you don't want to heat it that fast. You want oh, right. it to be a bit slower. So so that's one reason why the blast uh, furnaces the the technologies slightly different mm. and not that suitable for um, firing ceramics which where you need to go a bit slower and more gradual i see because i guess in ceramics um, the 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 rate at which you actually provide the heat controls the properties of the final product mm, yeah it's one of the things right yeah. that you use to control it. okay and were these processes documented in any form um the records see. of i think it Chinese ones. Let's see. 
because for that kind of um, I don't recall offhand because for those would be quite those those things would be quite technical mm. um, and I I can't remember offhand whether we have for the Chinese ones they might be but I'm not that familiar because um, for instance uh, I remember well this is another case like the Romans because mm. um, for my masters I did um for my master's thesis, I looked at Roman mortars, mm. and you do have um, records, uh, a treatise by Vitruvius, a uh, famous guy for architecture, and he talked about the different kinds of mortars and mm. how do you, um, how do you uh, um, slate the lime and all that. So that, I know they have it, but I don't recall offhand for the Chinese, for instance. Um, Southeast Asia, I don't think they have the treat um, any records that kind of technical mm. text for the um, for firing uh, high fight ceramics. So a lot of it would be for Southeast Asia at least. Um, you would rely on um, archaeology. So the kind of uh, well, kilns that have been left uh, over. Mm. That's one, and then if it's still in production, you might go for ethnographic studies. So for Chinese porcelain, for instance, you have Qingbezhen, uh, which is quite a well-known uh, porcelain capital, and they're still um, producing the porcelains. So oh, yeah. for, that, for, that, for that kind of um, situation, you would know, you would, well, it's, you don't really need the text because you have people still right. making them. I think that also would be the primarily mode of you know teaching and transferring the knowledge yeah, yeah. just first hand uh, yeah. yeah um okay so i want to gradually get into what you do specifically yeah, sure. in your phd sure. so my first question is is there like a research question that you specifically trying to answer mm, in this okay. phd have so, you got to that part <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it's kind of well to some extent i guess it would depend on what kind of samples I'm getting. So that's a bit of uh, playing by kind ear of still. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I think what I would like to look at is uh, the kind of uh, what what sort of raw materials, I guess, that the very basic uh, were being used. Mm. Because um, one issue, I guess, with the, the state of scholarship in Southeast Asian um, earthenware is that uh, they've not really looked at the materials um, in a sense that the raw materials of the uh, ceramics. So a lot of the studies have been focused on the decorations and the forms of the the earthenware. Um, But um, to look at it under a microscope, for instance, or uh, using chemical analysis is still, still... I suppose you could say that it's still at the beginning stages. Mm. So at a very basic, I guess, would be to look at these ceramics, uh, this earthenware from the different sites and see what their um, mineralogical and chemical composition would be and then uh, try to move right. forward from there. <laughs> so, and are you building upon someone's work or are you um, starting from scratch? I mean, in your research group. So I guess... 
Yeah, well, no, it's not subscribed, of course. Re- research group, that's... Mm, I don't think it's not <laughs> research. It, it operates a bit differently from the sciences. I'm I see. Afraid. Yeah. So um, I think it's building up from what has been done. So i.e. Um, that for the Singaporean uh, materials, for instance, use what... Well, what you would get... I suppose the process would be you excavate... And then um, there's post-excavation work where you do um, you record all the finds. So mm-hmm. in this case, the earthenware and the ceramics that I'd be interested in. Uh, put it in a database. Um, so that's where you get all the basic information, for instance, um, whether there's a decoration, what kind of form the, the ceramics would be, um, the, whether there's any surface treatment mm-hmm. and so on. So that would be, I guess, for the the basis for for what I'm doing because you can just pull out random samples and you know ca- um, do chemical analysis or um, look at it under a microscope but without that kind of bigger context then it's not really going to do much I think so yeah it's building up on um, the more traditional I guess archaeological approach where mm. you look at forms decorations and all that and then looking specifically at the raw materials. So, yeah, that's in that sense, it's uh, working, um, building up on something previous that has been done previously. But at the same time, I guess it's new in the sense that um, no one has really looked at, at least for, yeah, for petrographic thin sections. In the Singaporean material, there, has, there have been one or two studies on the chemical composition of um, the fine paceware, especially because um, that's the one that gets traded around. Mm. So that's the one that uh, people are slightly more interested in because of the trade connections. Whereas for tempered earthenware, because the assumption is that it would be made locally, although they might have been traded as well, uh, but not as extensively as the fine paceware. So um, so because they are thought to be made locally, this less interesting than okay. So um so in that sense, yeah, for Singapore. But in Southeast Asia there have been works done on yeah, looking at uh, using petrographic um petrographic analysis, which is what I'm doing, to look at um, materials from other places, other sites. So mm. um I think the Thais do have some papers I've come across there. Um Philippines, I'm not that sure. Indonesia, I don't think I've come across that many. But I think it's mainly, yeah, I think it's mainly Thailand and maybe Cambodia mm. that have, I've come across papers that look, uh, that apply um, petrographic studies and some other scientific analysis to the materials. But right. um, that's for geographical, in geographical terms. Um, in terms of time period, it's usually the prehistoric materials, so the Neolithic uh, ones, rather than the more historical period that I'm looking at, or mm. even colonial period. Under that, there, there is a there is a PhD thesis on a site uh, called Banten, Banten Lama in Indonesia, that uses part of it uses um, thin sections to look at the the look the earthenware, and then. Um, she also looked at uh, residual analysis, looking at the phytoliths, 
um, I think, textual evidence. Um, and the big picture for her was to look at the dietary um, uh, dietary practices mm. during this particular period, which is the colonial period. So um, how the Dutch and the local Bantanese um, uh, influence each other oh. in their dietary habits, which is quite, a, quite an interesting yeah. paper. Oh, that, that sounds interesting. So you're looking mm. at... Uh, what they eat from, I don't know you to tell the habits no, of not the people that... Them. <laughs> okay, yeah, but... <laughs> that, that particular person. I'm just saying so, that <laughs> it's quite an interesting yeah. study, isn't you, you? It looks like you, yeah, wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't know that you could use uh, mm. ceramics for that purpose. Because, for instance, uh, one of the things they looked, she looked at was um, uh, alcohol consumption. Mm. So, for instance, the Dutch were... Well, they, they drank, whereas the local... Uh, the Bantanese elite were Muslims, so they didn't drink. Um, but also, they looked at. She looked at how um, the cooking methods. So you have, say, uh, different types of cer- um, ceramic vessels to be used to cook uh, different dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was looking. I think that's true. The forms of the ceramics. So if I get you correctly, then at some point. The, the locals will be using tools that the colonizers brought and vice versa. Yeah, it's entirely possible tools. that, uh, yeah. So they learn from each other how to uh, cook different dishes uh-huh. and, and then they adopt. Interesting. So that's like hybridity in action, I guess. So, so for you specifically, you're, look, you're saying that you're trying to understand the materials, the raw materials that people use in in different places. So your study is a comparison across different geographies, am I right? That's one direction that could take place. Okay. <laughs> Assuming that I get the, the samples because it's dependent of uh, on the samples that I'm I'm getting. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so that would be, but that would be one uh, way to go forward, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, to look at the different um, raw materials that people are using and also because uh, with thin sections you could look at the, um, the some of the forming traces of forming techniques, mm. whether they were coil built or they, they're pinched or um, slab built. So some of them, some of these techniques would leave, um, for instance, the orient. Uh, it would affect the orientation of your your grains or the mm-hmm. the type of voids that you would get in the, the clay, and you might be able to see some of these in the in the, uh, the ceramics or even there's also um, clay mixing so mm. people might mix different types of clay together and sometimes you get to see you, you might be able to spot the different clay mixtures but that's also going to be quite difficult um, it's just going to be a challenge but uh, possible are there any big or large scale uses for ceramics in this region for example I know that ceramics can be used to make pipes, for example. Ah. Can you have yep. a whole water distribution system made mm. of ceramic pipes? Was such a project on such a scale ever done for ceramics? Yeah, I think uh, piping, <coughs> not that I'm aware of. Because, yeah, piping is definitely one of the things that you could do, but I don't think I've come across any water systems with that kind of clay pipes. Um, 
but the biggest usage I would say is um, from cooking. Mm-hmm. So cooking pots, um, because well, that's something that well, before you have well, metal is something that's not that um, common as it is today. Mm. Um, so for cooking, you won't have you usually won't have metal um, uh, vessels. And then for storage, you don't. They didn't have plastic, so um, pots would be the 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 go to thing. Um, so you have cooking vessels. You have uh, probably not so much like um, eating um, like plates or dishes, because I don't think we've seen much of that. Um, the possible reason why that it, that's um, the case is maybe the people in the past uh, ate out of um, things that would that are uh, how to put it yeah. disposable. Yeah, yeah, disposable like like banana leaves. Right. Uh, so mm-hmm. biodegradable, basically. So, uh, so you don't have uh, ceramic plates, or at least you don't see. Um, I don't think I've seen any it's quite yet. efficient actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot of work right <laughs> because you have to get the leaves every day and throw them away I don't know how, how in, in your culture did you use leaves or is it no I mean the, like I mean in the past not now yeah, yeah but that that's not uh, it's not a you know green mm. environment right don't have a lot of leaves around. <laughs> <laughs> no but you have yeah. got you gotta have bananas and stuff <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so cooking pots. The other one would be um, vessels for storing water. And mm. that goes... Uh, so the rationale for that is to keep the water cool. And mm. earthenware is uh, porous. So that means that um, water is able to evaporate through the clay body. Mm. And because of that, it keeps the water cool. So it's kind of like a pot sweating in a mm. in a way to keep it the, the water cool yes. so you just uh so yeah instead of refrigeration you have cool water in uh, earthenware pots so, so just to be clear earthenware uh stoneware stoneware porcelain and porcelain so this the difference is in temperature right yeah. the temperature at which it was fired yeah so that's the okay. main difference i'd say because there are other differences so for instance with earthenware Normally, at least the, the local ones, they are not glazed, as opposed to say um, stoneware or porcelain. You have mm-hmm. glaze, which makes it um, not not permeable to water, so it um, gets rid of the porosity. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you have stoneware, which is glazed, and um, one reason why it's you they want it to be non-porous is because it stores other types of liquid other than water. Mm-hmm. So, like um, say fish sauce or um, alcohol for fermentation. So in those kind of cases, you don't want the water to, the liquids to um, evaporate right. out. So, and then I guess you also have like forms. So for instance, uh, forms and functions. So for earthenware, uh, cooking pots, because um, it's a bit more, it's more, it's more resistant to heating mm. than say, um, to well, being under over a fire, direct heat, as opposed to, say, stoneware or um, uh, porcelain. Mm-hmm. 
and supposedly it, food tastes better if you cook it in earthenware pots. Supposedly, I hear that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. I actually tried it. Uh, uh, maybe an interesting experiment uh, to have a blind taste test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you haven't tried it? Not yet. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> you should do that since you're in the field. But I, I, I mean, I did eat from earthenware pots a lot, but I'm not sure I remember the difference. <laughs> but it sounds maybe more... Uh, it's more environmentally friendly. Maybe not. I actually don't know which is more friendly for the environment. Creating these, having every society make pots on their own or just having it outsourced the way that society is currently mm. organized where you have one part of the world make the pots pretty much for the rest mm. of the world, for example. I suppose one issue, one potential issue with that kind of uh, going to earthenware pots instead of whatever we have now is um, pots are made using clay and so you need a source of clay and if you keep taking out the clay then eventually it's gonna finish right <laughs> and then what do we do i don't think we can run out of clay though i feel like no, there's got to be a lot in the yeah, oceans yeah. and seas or because whatever i don't know what what is clay to be honest definition, <laughs> but, but i suppose it's gonna be a lot of it right <laughs> but at the same time uh but the other reason i guess why earthenware uh, why pottery you find it so much in the archaeological record is um, they break easily. Mm. So once you break it, you just throw it away. And then once you throw it, it doesn't um, decompose anything, so you find them still there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, well, because clays, you do need, yeah, it is in certain areas that you have them. So it's not anywhere that you just dig a pit and there's clay. Mm. Because, um, Normal soil, for instance, does not have that kind of um, clayiness. It needs to be like uh, it needs to be like stim- stick, sticky, something like that. Because um, the thing is when yeah, I guess it's called malleability, where you can mold it into a shape. Right. Mm. Whereas uh, with normal soil, it doesn't hold. Mm. So um, there are like clay deposits um, that could be. Exhausted, I guess, with as <laughs> with any other um, natural resource. I think it's in in Africa, if I remember correctly. Um, there's been ethnographic studies about um, the the potters, and one of the things is that uh, with potters, it's you have like a master and an apprentice, and then it gets um, passed down from one generation to the next, and they would have clay deposits that they would go to and one of the things that they do is if i remember correctly is that they have um, like rituals at the clay um, um, deposits so in a way they it's still seen as something like quite i suppose like, like natural spirits and kind of animism mm. um, attached to the, the clay resources so it's quite i, I suppose that's that's kind of respect i suppose for the for the natural resources whereas if it becomes commercialized it's just going to be like (laughs) (laughs) so i don't think uh, it's it's an it's a nice idea to have well clay using uh, clay pots being uh, as or or clay containers replacing plastics but at the same time i'm not sure that like commercialization of this kind of uh, products which is 
Yeah. Killed it. <laughs> mm. Because they are biodegradable, right? Is that right? Um, they're not biodegradable. Oh, they're not. <laughs> but at the same time, they don't uh, pollute the ground. Oh. So it's they're, they're inert, basically. So they're just there, waiting for someone to find it. <laughs> oh, okay. So, oh, I didn't know. So they don't, they don't, they don't, um, they don't pollute or they don't do anything. Mm. Well, speaking of that, do you have to do your own excavations? Like, um, you go around the region and, you know... I guess the, the good... Or and not the, yet. The or... good and the bad thing is that I don't have to because I, I would like to. <laughs> but, uh, but most of the things I'm doing would be post-excavation. So, for mm. instance, the Singaporean sites, um, they've been excavated. So now some of them are in the process of data entry. Um, and then um, I'm, I'll be doing that the analysis mm. um, there was well when I started that would be two years ago um, the plan was to one of the sites that we planned to look at was uh, Bagan in Myanmar mm. and then uh, with the political situation that's a no-go right so otherwise that would have been possible not, not excavation per se but at least some field work um, the other one is Indonesia, uh, Trawulan. Uh, although I'm not sure what's going on now. Um, that well with COVID, so mm. we'll see how that goes. Um, but for most of the sites, the Singaporean ones, uh, the materials are here. They've already been excavated, and some of the ones from around the region, uh, my supervisor has them. So I see. not really excavations. So it's more of post-excavation work, I'd say. Yeah. And are they available for the public to to observe, like in any museums? Ah, <laughs> museums. Um, glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, thing is, uh, the the ceramics that we have are all like insured, so they are really small, tiny fragments, mm. and it's difficult with museums because um, they would prefer nice, complete vessels <laughs> that you could exhibit. Something pleasing so, to die. Yeah. yeah. So uh, for these shirts, it's a bit, a bit, le- they're less, I guess, less keen because mm. chances are they'll end up in the storage and storage space is another issue that uh. people, uh, museums are, yeah, they have lots of other things to store. So shirts are not really on their priority <laughs> okay it's too bad i guess yeah. yeah and how do you actually study do you use a microscope you've mentioned a microscope a few times you've mentioned mm-hmm. uh, chemical analysis a few times so, as well and i'm wondering when you are looking at these properties of yeah, past so. such ancient pro- oh you brought something yeah i brought something i wish our listeners could see but imagine <laughs> he imagine him holding a couple of things in his hands so these are um mounted um, mounts so they're, they're not from the same project so uh, but just for illustrative purposes mm-hmm. so what you do is you cut about about one centimeter of the material so these are actually um uh, european porcelain mm-hmm. um about one centimeter and then you put them inside this uh, epoxy and then what you need to do is you need to expose the surface so you you um, probably yeah, polish it a bit, and mm. if you if you just right hold this to the light, you can see it. You can see like the light moving across the epoxy, and then there's a bit of a difference with the 
um, oh yeah, the uh, what's it called? What are we looking at again? So the light <laughs> is you can see the light going across the epoxy if you just move it a bit. Oh, and then there's the exposed surface, which is slightly different. Mm. So uh, the dots, yeah, this, this, so here on this surface. Oh, on this surface, yeah, yeah. So if you put it to the light, yeah, and you just move it, move it a bit, you can see like the reflection. Uh huh. And then the 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 um the ceramic itself is exposed. Exposed, right? Um, mm. and then what you want to do is to polish it. Um, so sorry, you want to grind it down a bit to smoothen it, and then polish it so that it reflects light. Mm. So um, this is for for mounts. Um, and then you can put it into a SAM EDS um, and do chemical analysis. Ah. It's SAM? Sorry? A what? Uh, SAM, S-E-M-D-E-S. Uh, so this is a machine? Yeah, it's a machine mm, okay. um, that does chemical analysis. So it's a scanning electron microscopy, um, let's see, um, energy dispersive spectroscopy. Okay. <laughs> so uh, basically what you do is you bombard the sample with electrons mm -hmm. and then there'll be electrons out. What you want to look at would be the backscatter electrons, which mm. is captured in a detector, and that gives you that tells you what kind of um, um, chemical elements are there in it. So mm. for it's like X-ray, like crystallography. Uh, no, 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 no. It's unrelated. You're, you're not looking at crystal, <laughs> okay. the, the crystal structure. So that would okay. be XRD, um, X-ray diffraction, which would be a different process, which I'm not doing. Oh. Okay. Um, but this one is basically just electrons firing mm. down and then releasing other electrons captured in a, a detector. Mm, okay. Um. So for Clays, you would expect to get silicon and aluminium. So those are the two main elements that you would look at. Um, and then you have things like... Um, Say that again. You, you When you bombard, what are you looking for? Um, what do you see after you have successfully... Okay, your signature, right? Like, um, yeah, so the spectrum. The spectrum okay. in the, well, on the software. Yeah. Oh, so you, so yeah. the spectrum tells you what materials or what elements are mm -hmm. in the... Because uh, you would have peaks. Yeah, right. And right, then you'll be looking at um, which peaks uh, correspond with which right. kind of elements. So you have a chart that tells you that I mean, this element is that, 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 that. And then yeah, when yeah. you look at it, you compare with mm -hmm. that chart um, kind of thing. More or less, yeah. Because okay. I, I don't think that's a standard standard, but because people have done well, uh, this kind of... Uh, yeah, analysis before, so there would be references as to what, um, say, the peaks of the, uh, silicon or peaks of aluminium, where would they be about? Mm. So, um, so silicon and aluminium, and then probably you uh, you find some sodium, potassium, and calcium, and that's because um, one of the things they add to this kind of porcelains is uh, what they call flux. And one of the kind of fluxes, uh, fluxes would lower your, um, the, let's see, I think it's the vitrification point where um, the temperature that's needed for it to vitrify and turn into porcelain. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And that, one of the common things that they use for flux is feldspar. So feldspar, you have three different types, main types of feldspar where one has the potassium, one has calcium, and one has sodium. 
So those three, you'd probably find you'd pro uh, probably looking at those. And I think there are a couple of elements, other elements, and then for things with these glaze. So for instance, this one is a blue. Mm -hmm. uh, probably you'd be looking out for cobalt because uh, that's one of the common um, pigments that you use for mm -hmm. for blues. So that's for chemical analysis. Wait, so let me just. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, yep. When someone says clay, is it based on the chemicals or elements found there or based on how those elements are arranged? Yeah, I suppose it depends on who... Yeah, I would say in terms of elements, you have silicon and um, aluminium. Okay. But then if you look at the crystal structure, then you have different types of clays. I see, I see. Okay, so the original elements, the, the elements that make clay are the same, so to say, but, yeah. but then you have a few things thrown there to kind of form different kinds of um, Not of so much clay. throwing different things, but rather the, the structure, the crystal structure, so how they are arranged. So, for instance, you might have them in sheets, mm. or you might have them as um, uh, a single... I can't remember offhand the, the terms for it. A, a single like chain mm. or a double chain. Mm -hmm. So you have different types of clays. Archaeolin, if I remember correctly, is one of those uh, sheet kind of uh, clays. Uh, it's a phyllosilicate. Mm. Oh, okay. So, so because you mentioned there are a few, like you were talking about cobalt just a moment ago. Oh, so I was wondering yeah. whether um, different kinds of clay contain different kinds of additional mm -hmm. uh, uh, For that, things. yeah. Um, trace elements, for instance, but you probably would need um, other kinds of uh, analysis and an analytical techniques. So, uh, for instance, you have ICT-MS, which stands for Inductively Coupled Plasma uh, mass, mass Spectrometry, which would uh, be able to look all the way to trace elements. Mm -hmm. But the cobalt is not part of the clay, it's part of the pigment that oh, gives okay. it a blue. Oh, I see, I see, okay. Yeah. You have other stuff. Oh, yes, yes, those. that's yeah. the, the next stage. <laughs> so, so, for instance, uh, so here you have the mounts um, and then you have thin sections. So, from for thin sections, you don't have to polish it, so you just need uh, to grind it first. Um, so, the polishing comes later. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is you you mount it onto a glass slide, so you put some another type of epoxy, um, leave it overnight, and then the next day when it's dry, you cut it. So about say um, one, let's see, is it four, one point four? I think it's about fifty. No, no. It's about 50, 50 odd microns. Can't remember offhand now. Mm. Um, what are you cutting? Sorry, you said you yeah. you're gonna you're gonna cut here so, yeah, you somewhere, cut, uh, which is about I think a hundred microns over mm. here. Um, so you you're you're only taking a small piece of it, so you you'd have a big chunk left over. Yeah. So I think yeah, if I remember correctly, there's a, about hundred microns, and then you want to grind them down. So, so what what are we looking at here? So you like, grind. Uh, so you grind them down mm. until they are 30 microns, mm -hmm. um, and then you polish them. So what you're looking for is uh, the, the minerals. So um, because at 30 microns, you have um, the, the quartz would be about yellow, light, a pale yellow color. 
and you know that um, you use the quads as your kind of your marker because they are the most commonly common one of the well the most common uh, mineral uh, grains that you find in ceramics uh, here because uh, you chances are people just add sand to um, to your the ceramics as mm. temper. And what you're looking at would be yeah at thirty microns you have interference colors, and then you know that you're you're there. Um, so apart from quartz, you'd see whether there are other minerals as well. So the idea is that you get sand from say a river, and that would be around the the end of the river. So when the river passes through different Areas you would take um, different routes and minerals, uh, mineral grains along mm. it. So the idea is that if you know um, the geology, you would potentially be able to trace uh, the provenance of whether you could determine, for instance, whether it's locally made or um, something that was uh, imported. Because if you see, uh, say, minerals that are not found in the local geology. Mm. Say if you find, um, say volcanic grains, uh, grains from volcanic rocks that, and in an area without volcanoes, then you might say you might be able to um, hypothesize that this these things came from somewhere else. Right. So that would be um, one of the things that you look for in the raw materials, and then as I mentioned also about uh, the the type, for instance, like the kind of voids, or maybe you could see clay mixing so technology as well so um this one so this is a thin section and you would put it under um, a polarizing microscope because okay. that's when you you'd be able to look at your interference colors so mm. this is about like, 30 microns uh thin so from this bit you cut out a bit and then you grind it down so it takes a bit of time wow. um but i'm quite happy that uh it's done using machines here. <laughs> um, so what, what you have right now, this is the actual sample that you can put under a microscope now and yep, observe. Yep. So this is a, a finished sample. Mm, okay. So and this is all created by machines? Um, no. Yeah, more or less. Okay. More or less. Because uh, the part where cutting this, well, cutting the, the, the one centimeter piece, uh, you could put it under... A diamond saw, a diamond blade, mm. but for for the most of the earthenware, I did it with um, a jigsaw because they are quite fragile, and the diamond blade is just a bit too aggressive, mm. and it might just destroy the whole thing. Oh. So that was done by hand, and then you have um, the casting and the first uh, grinding down to expose the the. the the surface mm. and that was done by hand then you have um, the grinding or lapping that was done by a machine the polishing is also done by machine okay. which is great because if you're doing it by hand that's gonna take forever and how long does it take right now with, um, the, machines? with the machines about i would say one to two weeks <laughs> one to two weeks two weeks because okay. um, you probably need uh, what we found, what we learned is that for the earthenware, it's best to dry them over two days because they are porous. And when you 
when, and you want to make sure they are totally dry. Mm. Uh, because if they're not, uh, what happens is at some point of time, it will delaminate. So, so delamination is something like this, where you can see it starts to peel off. And uh, because the, it didn't stick well, um, the, the sample didn't stick well to the, the glass line because of the water content. So we want to avoid that. So two days for that. And then the rest of it is... Yeah, so that would take... If you're lucky, it's one week. Two weeks because you have things like delamination. Mm -hmm. And there's one occasion where um, I accidentally broke the slides. Five of them. (laughs) Five of them. Yeah, so so that really sets you back a bit. And you need to redo it again. Um, So redoing, you just... uh, Yeah. So that 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 could take some time. Right. So um, about one to two weeks for a set. How, how new are these uh, methods? Are they? Oh no, no, they are quite. Um, they're quite old, old traditional okay. methods that have been done, um, tried and tested. Mm. But in Southeast Asia, it's not been utilized as much. Mm. So, for instance, in the UK, they do it quite a lot. Um, in Europe, they also do it quite a lot, and it's old because um, I think it was. In the 1940s, where you already have publications for ceramics being studied with thin sections, and for those um, those articles, um, now now we have photographs, it's so easy. Um, back then, the the I think the the scholar actually drew what he saw, oh. so it's like wow, well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, and uh, are these available online, like for people to see them, like? Um, not, them a link or not yet at the moment. I uh, mean, not these specific oh. samples, but maybe something similar. Um, where do you get them? <laughs> these these are from the sites in Singapore. Oh. Hmm. Let's see. I don't think you have articles with thin sections. Um, or maybe they can just Google it, I guess. Yeah, Southeast Asian um, ceramics, um, thin sections, mm-hmm. those would be the keywords. Because there are articles um, scattered here and there. Uh, I think some of them are open access, so they can have a look at the, what has been done. Um, but I don't think I don't think there is um, a repository, a central repository mm. for um, Southeast Asian materials, because partly maybe it's it's not really done much. There is one um, let's see what if I can recall. It's called I think it's called the Levantine Ceramic Project. And that looks, um, it's a repository for thin sections, mainly thin sections of um, ceramics. Uh, Thin sections have been done for ceramics around the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean Uh area. So that one, that one is kind of like, I think a nice model for if ever, um, we well in Southeast Asia we get to that stage where there's lots of mm-hmm. uh, thin sections being done, but at this point of time it's just a few here, a few there. Okay. <laughs> so not yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, you've got you know your own research topic and your own research goal, but can you tell us a bit more about the field? Where are you guys intending to go as a field? What is the end game? Um, or, or what are some things that you think would be 
uh, breakthroughs in your field if this were <laughs> breakthroughs in your field <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know and, and I haven't, we haven't really had so, 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 sociology not sociology right? what <laughs> archaeology, archaeology. <laughs> archaeology. We, 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 I don't know what are the meta questions that archaeologists want to to, uh, to address I think yeah I think for for Southeast Asia this particular early historical period probably there isn't yet that kind of like meta question um, I would say that the, the prehistoric period with the, what's it called the, the Nusantau that I mentioned earlier on um, they, they've been looking at um, decorations and uh, to some extent vessel form so maybe in that particular area they could look there is kind of a bigger overarching question that um, um, thin section petrography and scientific analysis could um, help to um, complement what has already been done in the past. But for the ones that I'm looking at, the 14th to 16th century, I think what I'm hoping at this point at least is to have something started and then um, just gradually build that up and then maybe somewhere down the line to, uh, to think about how all this can fit together. So I think at this point of time, it's not so much about building a house, so to speak, but rather getting the bricks. Right. <laughs> yeah, getting the bricks and tiles and whatnot, and then build the house. Because at this point, I don't think we have the bricks yet. Or at least you have some here and there, but not sufficient mm-hmm. for that, uh, that kind of thing. What is the most exciting thing you've discovered in your research? Not, you know, through reading, not you as in what have you discovered or invented, but like what is something that you were awed by when you read or saw mm. about ceramics or how people use them or what do we use for anything? Can we, uh, <laughs> archaeology in general or specifically ceramics? Just specifically ceramics archaeology. Okay. Is there anything you saw that was fascinating that you would like to share with our folks? Okay, uh, let's see. No, it's not entirely not to not um, directly related to what I'm doing. Um, maybe a bit more. Yeah, it's a bit more related to uh, what one of my seniors is doing. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it was probably a couple of months back that the and it's not in uh, Southeast Asia, it was in um, somewhere in Europe where they looked at, um, I think, latrines and the ceramic, um, ceramic um, like, latrine pots. Mm-hmm. And they found evidence of um, some kind of uh, parasites. Yeah, mm-hmm. through the, well, the waste, human waste. It was still stuck... <laughs> The, it was it was in inside the yeah things yeah in in the part itself. Oh, so they did a DNA and DNA. Uh, I think they did <laughs> microscopic analysis. <Okay. laughs> so I thought it was quite interesting. It is, yeah, <laughs> right, right. It's always fascinating to hear uh, from people who have studied in the past, who have studied the past, you know, because uh, we are still we only know a small portion. Those are also studying uh, non. Uh, historical archaeological things we only study a small portion of human history yeah. right? and I think it's always nice to hear what people did in the past because I think to some degree 
it's a repetition of the skills, right? Or small steps that we take to to do the same thing that other people did, but slightly differently. Because mm-hmm. ceramics are still very cool today, right? They're still a thing. Like people <laughs> are still making lots of things out of ceramics, and there's still debates about whether it's, it's better in some instances than in others. Right? So I think the skills and knowledge about what people did. Um, it's definitely very useful. So thank you for sharing with us about <laughs> ceramics and history of ceramics. Okay. Um, so we are moving toward uh, your hobbies. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> right. <The> title section. <laughs> so you know you do a lot of uh, uh, studying the past. What keeps you going in the present <laughs> besides the research? <laughs> Uh, I guess, well, I would describe my interests or hobbies as more on the mundane side. Um, for instance, I like, I, I enjoy like taking public transport. I mentioned this before. <laughs> okay. It's an interesting hobby. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a cheap and interesting hobby. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, okay. I guess where it kind of started would be and I did my master's. So one of uh, well, one semester was spent in Rome, and it was at La Sapienza. So we have classes that, for some reason, ended at rush hour, so in the evening, mm. the re- evening rush hour. I'm not sure how, why they arranged in such a way, but okay. So um, I live slightly outside of the city center, so I need to take. There's a metro. Um, Castro Pretorio, I think that's the... No, no, um, Polyclinico. That was the one closest to the university. Mm-hmm. And that's the blue line that takes you to my stop, which is Marconi. And because it's a rush hour, the ride from um, Polyclinico to Pyramide is quite crowded. And it's like, that's pre-COVID time, so it's everyone's like squashed like sardines mm-hmm. in it can. Um, and then p- a lots of lots of people would get down at Pyramide to take the Roma Lido railway, so further out of town. Um, so what I enjoyed doing was to take the train, um, the metro from um, Polyclinico to Termini, and then I think it was the one a uh, seven one four bus, which goes to close to my place, and because that bus starts at Termini, you you most likely get a seat. It's more or less like empty when you get there. Stop, right. Yeah, so after that, it gets it starts getting crowded. And it's very nice because it just, the, the bus winds through Rome mm. and you get to see all these nice monuments and uh, churches and so on. It's quite cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's not the same in Singapore, but, <laughs> but it's, it's doable. Um, and I think that's, yeah, it's... You still do that here? Or yeah, when, when I go out, yeah. Because, okay. yeah, I think one thing... I guess I notice is that people are always on their phones, so right. they don't actually look outside of the bus and see what's going on, and I think that's a shame because well, that's and anyways, that's something I like to just just looking out and seeing things. Right, I mean, I agree with you. Whenever I have time, I just prefer the bus because yeah. you can just look outside. And, yeah, it's yeah, just it's time to. I I think it is kind of like time to wind down the mm. as well, and it's nice if you're not in a hurry. Then that's yeah, that's the right. ideal. Right. Mm. Yeah. what else uh, what else anything more like cooking in the 
in some of this part. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, cooking is another thing that yeah, I guess another mundane thing that I enjoy doing, but not so much in recent times because I'm living in halls and mm. the only cooking thing you have is a little uh, electric right. hob. You can still get creative with those. <laughs> Although then, then the other thing is you need you probably need a fridge to store yes. the stuff. Yeah. So. Uh, um, so what I've been reduced to is just boiling extra vegetables. <laughs> the food here is, I, I find that it lacks like just that extra bit of vegetables. So that's what I do. Mm. But what I enjoy, uh, one of the things I enjoy doing with cooking is using up leftovers. So um, one of, I guess one example is uh, when I did field work in France, uh, for lunch they usually have um, catered food mm. so you they, they get food from a caterer and um, eat and often there would be leftovers and dinner we would um, cook on our own so dinner dinner is usually more or less planned by um, some of the people but during the weekends for instance you'd have quite a bit of leftovers right um, i try to use up the leftovers and make something out of it okay. which is fun right. because it's it's also a challenge right you need to like, think like mm, what am i going to do with yeah. these so, for instance, we had uh, once there was a chickpea salad, and there's a whole tub of chickpeas, basically. <laughs> so, what I did was I, I kind of mashed chickpeas okay. up. And the idea is like, to me like falafels, so not really falafels, but falafel-like substance <laughs> with I chickpeas. Mean, th- this is the idea behind many dishes, actually, mm-hmm. across the world. Yeah, uh, falafel is definitely one of them. They're at the Dewey also. Mm-hmm. It's like another yeah. dish where they just use leftovers. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. So yeah, I find it fun to just figure out how to make use of all the leftovers. So your master's was in Europe or was uh, it? Yeah, it okay. was an Erasmus Mundus program. Uh, Erasmus, masters. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was here and there. Oh, that's cool. Studying ceramics. Was no, no, no. That was okay. on archaeolog- archaeological material <laughs> sciences. So it's... it's um, more or less specializing from archaeology to, well, a subfield, I guess, of archaeology, mm. so archaeological science. So um, for the first three semesters, you're more or less looking at um, the different techniques and the different materials that you could um, analyze mm. using scientific techniques. So those were more uh, introductory because uh, for most of us, most of us were from an archaeological background. You have a few people from the sciences, but at the same time, the for, uh, so for the archaeologists, they would not be we would not be familiar that familiar with scientific techniques. For the scientists, they would they might not be familiar with right. archaeological um, techniques or even yeah even even the sciences even the sciences because um, for the sciences we focus on chemistry and geology. Um, so the first three uh, semesters were more or less looking at um, the various things. Mm. And then it was only with the thesis that you uh, focus on a specific project. And I wasn't looking at ceramics, actually. I was looking at Roman mortars. Okay. But the techniques were um, similar in the sense that um, there was SAM EDS, um, ceram- um, the thin section petrography. And then I did a bit of XRD um, and thermogravimetric analysis. So the first two, um, SAM EDS and 
um, thin section petrography. That's what I'm, well, I've brought over here mm. to oh, apply cool. it to ceramics. Because yeah. I, I quite enjoyed the thin section petrography when I did my master's. So I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Very nice. All what? Right. Um, you want to close? You wanna yeah, I have another question. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, Alvin, thanks uh, very much for chatting with us. You've talked to us about ceramics and how they have been used throughout his, at least to some degree, uh, how they've been used throughout history. You've also talked to us about how you personally are studying the raw materials that are used to create uh, the different ceramics in this region. So we wish you all the best in your research and we enjoyed this conversation very much. <laughs>